I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to The Story Is, where we talk about the past, the present, and the personal. The story is The Hero and the Spy. When General George Washington arrived in July of 1775 to take command of the, of the Revolutionary Army, he was impressed by the work of Henry Knox. The two almost immediately developed a liking for one another, and Knox began to interact regularly with Washington and the other generals developing the Continental Army. Knox did not have a commission in the Army, but John Adams in particular worked in the Second Continental Congress to acquire him a commission as Colonel of the Army's Artillery Regiment. Knox bolstered his own case by writing to Adams that Richard Gridley, the older leader of the artillery under Ward, was disliked by his men and in poor health. As the siege wore on, the idea arose that a cannon recently captured at the fall of Forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point in upstate New York could have a decisive impact on the outcome of the war. Knox generally credited with suggesting the prospect to Washington, who put him in charge of an expedition to retrieve them, even though Knox's commission had not yet arrived. Reaching Ticonderoga on December 5th, Knox commenced what came to be known as the Noble Train of, our, the noble train of Artillery, hauling by ox-drawn sleds 60 tons of cannon and other armaments across some 300 miles. 480 kilometers of ice-covered rivers and snow-draped Berkshire mountains to Boston siege camps. On several occasions, cannon crashed through the ice on river crossings, but the details men were always able to recover them. In the end, what Knox had expected to take just two weeks actually took more than six, and he was finally able to report the arrival of the weapons train to Washington on January of January 27, 1776, called by historian Victor Brooks one of the most stupendous feats of logistics of the entire war. Knox's effort is commemorated by a series of plaques marking the Henry Knox Trail in New York and Massachusetts. Henry Knox is a important key figure in the Continental Army effort. At this time, his trek up to New York to get the much-needed cannons came at a very critical time. Washington's men were, the morale was low, supplies were low, they were breaking down houses and boats and piers in order to get just necessary wood and supplies and they were in desperate need of these cannons. Henry Knox volunteers to do it, and the siege is supposed his effort up to New York is supposed to take about three weeks. And it takes around actually around ten. When he comes back, Washington was probably wondering, why did it take so long? Well, what Henry Knox did was he traveled mostly by the riverbeds. He waited for the rivers to freeze over. 
which took time. And he actually would travel ahead of time, ahead of his uh, group that they were traveling, and he would poke holes in the river in order for the water to come up through the, through the river and freeze the ice some more. Then they had to do this a lot. Going up into the fort, Ticonderoga, they had to wait for the river to freeze over and in order to pass through. And they had to do a lot of waiting when they got back, on their way back. And while Henry Knox waited for what was called Lake George to freeze over, he met a man who was a prisoner, and his name was John Andre. John Andre, in 1779, became adjunct general of the British Army in America with the rank of major. In April of that year, he took charge of British Secret Service. By the next year, 1780, he had briefly taken part in in Clinton's invasion of the South, starting with the siege of Charleston, South Carolina. Around this time, Andre had negotiated with disillusioned American General Benedict Arnold. Arnold's loyalist wife, Peggy Shippen, was one of the go-betweens in the correspondence. Arnold commanded West Point and had agreed to surrender it to the British for 20,000 pounds, approximately 3.65 million dollars in 2018, a move that would have enabled the British to cut off New England from the rest of the colonies. The two men conferred in the woods below Stony Point until nearly dawn, after which Andre accompanied Arnold several miles to the Josh Het Smith House in West Haverstaw, New York, owned by Thomas Smith and accompanied by his brother. To aid, to aid Andre's escape through the American lines, Arnold provided him with civilian clothes and a passport, which allowed him to travel under the name John Anderson. He bore six papers hidden in his stocking, written in Arnold's hand, that showed the British how to take the fort. Josh Het Smith, who was accompanying him, left him just before he was captured. Andre rode on in safety until 9 a.m. on the 23rd of September, when he came into near Terrytown, New York, where armed militiamen John Paulding, Isaac Van Wart, and Dave Williams stopped him. Andre thought that they were Tories, because one was wearing a Hessian soldier's overcoat. Gentlemen, he said, I hope you belong to our party. What party? asked one of the men. The lower party, replied Andre, meaning the British. We do, was the answer. Andre then told them that he was a British officer who was not to be detained. Then, to his surprise, they said that they were Americans and that he was their prisoner. He then told them that he was an American officer and showed them his passport. The suspicions of his captors now arose. They were now aroused. They searched him and found Arnold's papers in his stocking. Only Paulding could read, and Arnold was not initially suspected. Andre offered them his horse and watch, if they would let him go, but they did not accept the bribe. 
Andre testified at his trial that the men searched his boots for the purpose of robbing him. Paulding realized he was that Andre was a spy and took him to the Continental Army headquarters in Sands Hill, which is where he, where he met Henry Knox. The prisoner was first detained at Wright's Mill in North Castle, New York, before being taken to the headquarters of the American Army at Tappan, where he was held at the tavern of the old 76 house, where he admitted who he really was. General Washington convened a board of senior officers to investigate, to investigate the matter. The trial contrasted with Sir William Howe's treatment of Hale some four years earlier. The board of, this, of John Andre's trial consisted of Major Generals Nathaniel Green, Lord Sterling, Arthur St. Clair, Lafayette, Robert Howe, Brigadier Generals Samuel H. Parsons, James Clinton, John Glover, John Patterson, Edward Hand, Jebediah Huntington, John Stark, Judge Advocate General John Lawrence, and again, Henry Knox. Andre's defense was that he was suborning an enemy officer, an advantage taken in war, his words. However, he did not attempt to pass the blame on to Benedict Arnold. Andre told the court that he had neither desired nor planned to be behind American lines. He also asserted that as a prisoner of war, he had the right to escape in civilian clothes. In September 29th, 1780, the board convened. And this is where my imagination takes off. Henry Knox, who has met this man once already, however briefly, and who has served as a key component to the American victory in the Revolutionary War meets this is now in a position of judgment on this man but Knox is a hero and um, I'm sure a very firm believer in in the American cause but one would be I I'm tempted to think if he was in favor of letting John Andre go. I don't know. What I do know is that the board found Andre guilty of being behind American lines under a feigned name and a disguised habit and ordered Major Andre Adjunct General to the British Army ought to be considered as a spy from the enemy and that agreeable to the law and usage of nations, it is their opinion he ought to suffer death. And that is what happens to John Andre. Not necessarily a dangerous man, not a killer of many people, 
his plan with Benedict Arnold does not succeed, yet he is sentenced to death because he is considered a spy. Sir Henry Clinton, the British commander in New York, did all that he could to save Andre, his favorite aide, but refused to surrender Benedict Arnold in exchange for him, even though he personally despised Benedict Arnold. Andre appealed to George Washington to be executed by firing squad, but by the rules of war, he was hanged as a spy at Tappan, New York, in October 2nd, 1780. Now, this is where things get interesting for John Andre. Not both before and after he dies. And we're going to see some things about John Andre that are irregular, I think, to just any ordinary person being seen as a spy, executed, and then that's it. He becomes, he takes on an interesting, I don't know, persona, no, not persona, but he becomes more fascinating as his execution looms. Here's what I mean. For one thing, a religious poem is found in his pocket after his execution, written two days beforehand. Why is that a big deal? John Andre has the somehow the the piece the peace of mind or the create creativity or the forethought to be writing a poem two days before he's supposed to be executed. You could write anything you want. I would be writing more letters to say, hey, please don't kill me. Interestingly enough, John Andre is writing a poem. While a prisoner, he endeared himself to American officers who lamented his death as much as the British. Um, Alexander Hamilton wrote of him, Never, perhaps, did any man suffer death with more justice or deserve it less. The day before his hanging, Andre drew a likeness of himself with pen and ink, which is now owned by Yale College. Andre, according to witnesses, placed the noose noose around his own neck. Again, um, this is amazing, I don't know, calm or resolution to the event happening. He's going to die, and he places the noose around his own neck. I just find that fascinating. An eyewitness account of the last day of Major Andre can be found in the book The American Revolution, from the commencement to the disbanding of the American army given in the form of a daily journal, and the exact dates of all the important events. Also a biographical sketch of the most prominent generals by James Thacker, M.D. October 2nd. Major Andre is no more among the living. I have just witnessed his exit. It was a tragical scene of the deepest interest. During his confinement and trial, 
He exhibited those proud and elevated sensibilities which designate greatness and dignity of mind. Not a murmur or a sigh even escaped him. And the civilities and attentions bestowed on him were politely acknowledged. Having left a mother and two sisters in England, he was heard to mention them in terms of the tenderest affection. And in his letter to Sir Henry Clinton, he recommended them to his particular attention. The principal guard officer, who was constantly in the room with the prisoner, relates that when the hour of execution was announced to him in the morning, he received it without emotion. And while all present were affected with silent gloom, he retained a firm countenance with calmness and composure of mind. Observing his servant enter the room in tears, he exclaimed, Leave me till you can show yourself more manly. His breakfast being sent to him from the table of General Washington, which had been done every day of his confinement, he partook of it as usual having shaved and dressed himself. He placed his hat upon the table and cheerfully said to the guard's officers, I am ready at any moment, gentlemen, to wait on you. The fatal hour having arrived, a large detachment of troops was paraded, and an immense concourse of people assembled. Almost all of our general and field officers, excepting His Excellency and staff, presented on horseback, Melancholy and gloom pervaded all ranks, and the scene was affectingly awful. I was so near the solemn march to the fatal spot as to observe every moment, and participate in every emotion which the melancholy scene was calculated to produce. Major Andre walked from the stone house in which he had been confined between two of our sublatern officers, arm in arm, and the eyes of the immense multitude were fixed on him who, rising superior to the fears of death, appeared as if conscious of the dignified deportment which he displayed. He betrayed no want of fortitude, but retained a complacent smile on his countenance, and politely bowed to several gentlemen whom he knew, which was respectfully returned. It was his earnest desire to be shot, as being the mode of death most comfortable to the feelings of a military man, and he had indulged the hope that his request would be granted. At the moment, therefore, when suddenly he came in view of the gallows, he involuntarily started backward and made a pause. Why this emotion, sir? said an officer by his side. Instantly recovering his composure, he said, I am am reconciled to my death, but I detest the mode. While waiting and standing near the gallows, I observed some degree of trepidation placing his foot on a stone and rolling it over and choking in his throat as if attempting to swallow. So soon, however, as he perceived that things were in readiness, he stepped quickly into the wagon and at this moment he appeared to shrink but instantly, elevating with firmness, he said, It will be but a momentary pang and taking from his pocket two white handkerchiefs, the provost marshal, with one, loosely pinioned his arms, and with the other, the victim, having taken off his hat and stock, bandaged his own eyes with perfect firmness. 
with melted, which, which melted the hearts and moistened the cheeks, not only of his servant, but of the throng of spectators. The rope being appended to the gallows, he slipped the noose over his head and adjusted it to his neck, without the assistance of the awkward executioner. Colonel Scammell now informed him that he'd had an opportunity to speak if he desired it. He raised the handkerchief from his eyes and said, I pray you to bear me witness that I meet my fate like a brave man. The wagon being now removed from under him, he was suspended and instantly expired. It proved indeed but a momentary pang. After John Andre's death, a play is written about him. Andre, a tragedy in five acts, is a play by William Dunlap, first produced at the Park Theater in New York City in March of 30th, 1798, by the Old American Company, published in that same year together with a collection of historic documents relating to the case of the title character, Major John Andre. The British officer who was hanged, the play does not go into the historic details, but rather presents a fictionalized account of the American debate over whether to spare him or hang him. The play shows the anguish felt by many of the Americans over the necessity to hang the brilliant and charming officer. George Washington wrote in a letter in October the 10th, 1780, of John Andre. He was more unfortunate than criminal. A pension was awarded to his mother and three sisters not long after his death, and his brother William and Andre made a baronet in his honor in 1781. In 1804, a memorial plaque by Charles Ringnart was erected in the, in the Grosvenor Chapel in London to John's memory. In 1821, at the behest of the Duke of York, his remains, which had been buried under the gallows, were removed to England and placed among kings and poets. The Hero and the Spy That was the title of this episode. But really, the hero and the spy are John Andre. He appears to take on a heroic figure, almost tragic in how he's arrested and how he's tried and convicted and and especially how he goes about and accepts his fate. Whereas Henry Knox is a soldier. And he gets he gets a fort named after him. He gets Fort Knox. What does John Andre get? Someone who who was important in the eyes of the British uh, receives a play. He gets monuments. Even an, uh, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton regret his passing. 
all because I think not I think not only because of how unjust they perceive his execution to be but I think how he died also mattered and I think that's what was so impressive about him that he was able to take this situation on and he continued to be himself but not only himself but the best version of himself in a very hard situation now I don't know if Henry Knox was ever um tested like this he took on a huge um, task and he figured out how to do it but yet Henry Knox doesn't get any plays written about him no great quotes about Henry Knox no one no one wonders if he wrote any poems and without Henry Knox it's very possible America doesn't win the Revolutionary War. So it makes me wonder why tell this story? Well, first, I tell this story because I first wanted to just tell you about Henry Knox. But once I found out that he had, along the way, met a spy named John Andre, it made me first wonder, well, did they talk? Did they meet? Did, you know, what did they think of each other? And then what did Henry Knox think once he saw him again, once he was seeing John Andre on trial? I can't help but wonder or ponder if there if I'd like to think that Henry Knox um argued for John Andre's life but we don't know. But we do know how John Andre accepted it. And that I'm quite quite impressed by. And think that it gives me an interesting... Well, it gives me an insight on what a hero is. Not necessarily just the, the person who succeeds and does great things, but also someone who's willing to accept terrible things when they happen to them. And accept them willingly and able to cope with them, but not just cope with them, but deal with them hard circumstances in a very respectful manner to where the people around you respect you as well. Even though you haven't changed anything, the terrible event has still occurred, but it's how you go through that event and how you react to that event is what makes you a hero.
I just found John Andre especially to be a very fascinating story. And I thank you for listening to this story. We'll see you next time.